Travis Bader, and this is the Silvercore Podcast. Silvercore has been providing its members with the skills and knowledge necessary to be confident and proficient in the outdoors for over 20 years, and we make it easier for people to deepen their connection to the natural world. If you enjoy the positive and educational content we provide, please let others know by sharing, commenting, and following so that you can join in on everything that Silvercore stands for. If you'd like to learn more about becoming a member of the Silvercore Club and community, visit our website at silvercore.ca. An expert in the field of artificial intelligence, today's guest helped architects such things as infinite scrolling, like functionality, ad optimization, and other attention-diverting AI features. Feeling something was deeply missing from his life, this city dweller uprooted his life to live in the mountains, to learn to hunt and trap, and has written the book, Turning Feral, which documents his journey. Broadcasting remotely from the base of the Sawtooth Mountains in the small town of Atlanta, Idaho, population 35, welcome to the Silver Corp podcast, Zach Hansen. Wow. Thank you, Travis. That was quite the introduction, but uh, hearing you uh, read off those things that I've been a part of it. I can't help but feel a little guilty as I think about people scrolling through their phones and stuck in uh, social media loopholes. (laughs) You know, I remember reading a book a long time ago. I think it was called um, Addictive Habits. I think that's what the book was called uh, or Programming Addiction, something along those lines, but Addictive Traits. Anyways, the psychology of building like infinite scrolling and like functionality, there's a lot that goes into keeping people hooked on their electronic devices and out basically indoors and, uh, and numb looking for the next dopamine hit. Yep. That's exactly it. It's one of those weird things where that psychology and technology merge, uh, in a non positive way, uh, as we found out over the years. Uh, uh-huh. but it's interesting for me cause I'm a new father. I have two young kids, one's two, the other's four months old. And, you know, just seeing how easily my two-year-old daughter can interact with an iPhone or an iPad. It's mind-blowing oh, yeah. to me, and it's scary at the same time, and makes well, me feel tinged you know, with regret. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, you're an expert in the field of artificial intelligence, and I think about how, like you say, how easy it is for a youngster to be able to handle an iPhone or an iPad. Um, really. Like if you look at us as humans and let's say we had a bunch of dogs that we had to take care of, we could pretty easily whip them into shape, have them trained up and, uh, you know, do, doing what we want to do because we're smarter than dogs. Artificial intelligence, that's an interesting thing. I mean, I'm looking at, uh, open AI, chat GPT, all of this stuff. And I'm thinking of the mass amount of information that's out there and the idea that people think they have unique thought, but really how much of what we do is, is unique. How much of it is just us running an autopilot based on things that we've kind of learned. I gotta, I gotta wonder as cool as this whole artificial intelligence thing is that we're on the sort of the cusp of, it's also pretty scary in some ways too. I don't know. What's your take on this whole AI thing from a person with a background? Uh, there's a reason I live at the end of an 80 mile dirt road in a town of 35 people Uh, (laughs) in reality, right? It's not from a fear mongering standpoint, like, you know, the robots are going to take over the world, but 
you know, it's so easy to be manipulated by technology and, you know, being so entrenched in it myself, I wanted to personally get away and, you know, introduce as much non-technical aspects into my everyday life as I possibly could, because there's no way you get Mm -hmm. away from it. I mean, you and I are Mm -hmm. able to have this conversation because of really cool technology. You know, Elon Musk has some low orbit satellites that are beaming signals up and down so that you and I can talk right now. Sure. And that's pretty, pretty freaking cool, in my opinion. Yeah. But, you know, when you get through the social aspects, that's where like I wanted buffers and I chose to live where we're living now. So, you know, when I am done with work, when my laptop is off, when my cell phone is not in my hand or I go two feet out of my driveway, I'm disconnected. Right. And, uh, yeah, I-, I loved your metaphor at the beginning, though, as far as the dog training. Mm. Um, the only thing that I would disagree with you there, Travis, is as you read my book, I don't know if that's a great reference because there are so many canines, at least wild ones, that are way smarter <laughs> than me. So, yeah, no, I, that was a recurring theme as I read through the book. I love the humility. I love the honesty in your book. Um, yeah, I was going to say monkeys. I don't know dogs. It, essentially, just a mass aggregate of information out there that when, when you just uh, when you when you take all of that, it's pretty easy to spot patterns particularly if we're programmed to do it. Like I was yeah. using the artificial intelligence. I'd upload whole books and I say, explain it to me like I'm five years old. And then for fun, I'll make it into a poem, turn it into a haiku and it would yep. do it. Uh, the amount that you can upload now, I think as of a week or two ago has been limited, but, um, I'm sure they'll charge for that feature. Yeah. But you, you know, another one, like I wrote a article before and I thought, you know, just for fun, I'll give it a one sentence parameter on this, uh, it was a, about five or six pages typed article that I put together, write an article on, and I put it out there. And if it didn't come pretty close to what I spent a few days writing within a couple of seconds, I mean, it's amazing what it can do. And I thought I had all this unique thought in there. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, what's interesting is where AI, especially when you're talking about chat GPT and um, Mm. other things that are trained on large corpuses of data, um, you know, data that is an aggregate of many people who are not as unique as we think we are. We all think we're super unique, you know, individuals. Sure. But when you look at it in an aggregate, we're not really. So when you look at the ingestion of articles, the ingestion of books, and you do that across a wide array of individuals, when you put a prompt in, you're going to get something back that's pretty close to you. But, you know, to put a little feather of optimism here, like, the amount of data it would take to have 1000% uniqueness in you know writing and art would be nearly impossible there's always going to be this percentage and ability for humans to you know not necessarily outperform because that's defined by the metrics you're measuring it but from a uniqueness mm. perspective it, there's optimism there. I mean, you're going to get really close and it's going to be fuzzy lines where you're like, was that like a machine that, you know, wrote that or painted that, but you know, humans are humans and we do some pretty unique shit. So I, I think yeah, we're always going to yeah. have the edge there slightly. 
Yeah, I guess the only scary thing about that whole AI is what you mentioned earlier, and that's the ability to manipulate. And we've seen manipulation at large scale, particularly over the last few years, whether for good or for bad or best intentions or whatever it might be. But you take the job of manipulation and you look at that mass aggregate and you take a look at uh, what would be the most effective way to do so, it, it'll spit back solutions in seconds, what would usually take experts a fair bit of time to come up with a plan. So that's, uh, that's the scary thing. Yeah. Well, like I said, you know, you get big mass groups of people, you know, with proctored information, you know, good or bad, you're going to have mm. fallout. And again, that's maybe why I live in a town at the end of a road that happened to be in the sixties, a really popular place for nuclear bug out, uh, individuals because of the way <laughs> the trade winds blow. So, you know, we've got some mm. caves, we've got all sorts of stuff, natural water, hot springs. So, you know, come out to the Atlanta, Idaho, when, uh, the AI robots take over and we can all hide out and fight back. <laughs> well, you're doing something that a lot of people fantasize about. A lot of people dream about, but not many people have the courage to actually actuate. And, you know, particularly since COVID hit, the idea of being more self-sufficient, self-reliant, uh, uh, where does my food come from? How, how can I survive if things go sideways? Um, you started that prior to COVID when the world really started becoming awake to that. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about what life was like prior to wanting to hunt and trap and move out in the bush and kind of what drove you to this? Yeah, there's a lot of factors, right? Um, you know, first and foremost, you know, the life that I was living with my ex-wife at the time was, was very nice. It was very cush, mm -hmm. right? You know, I was working in artificial intelligence. My ex-wife was an FBI special agent. So we were, you know, living in Louisiana, which is, you know, not my, uh, favorite state in the world, but you know, it was good. We had a nice big okay. house, we had the cars, we had dogs, we went on vacations every year. You know, we were really doing, and I mentioned in the book, keeping up with the Joneses, right? It's like, you know, mm. what was the American dream for us? You know, white picket fence, big house, all of that. Um, and I felt hollow just to be frank. Like I didn't know what the feeling was. It's not like I woke up in a depression, but I just constantly felt like there was something missing. And you know, my ex-wife was an athlete. I was an athlete. We both did, you know, really high level jujitsu. She was a jujitsu world champion. And so we were traveling for competition, but we, and I did some ultra running, but I was always focused on fitness and part of fitness mm. is nutrition. You know, I'd been a wrestler all through high school, college, the whole lot. So it was something that was just a big part of our lives, especially since we didn't have kids. It was, you know, wake up, train, mm. work, repeat. And, you know, that brought some joy, you know, brought community and camaraderie and, you know, our gym. But as we sure. kind of got down that path more and more of like, okay, what can we optimize? What can we optimize? You know, you start looking at the food you eat. You know, we were counting our macros, doing all the stuff that makes you miserable, in my opinion, hindsight being what it is, <laughs> um, you know, and the meats we were consuming were okay, but to get like decent quality, we were having to go to real high-end grass-fed beef, grass-fed bison. Mm. And that led us down the path of like, okay, well, what about wild game? And this was also the same time that I think, you know, and my wife, as I mentioned in the book, was very much into social media. Even I was to a degree with Instagram. So, you know, you followed the Joe Rogans, the Cam Haynes, and they're like, yeah, I eat elk meat. And I'm like, well, what, what is that? Mm -hmm. And that really started the, 
I guess the snowball for me. It was just a, a curiosity. And I happened to have, you know, in-laws, my wife's family were hunters. They're from middle Tennessee. And, right. you know, we started talking about it at family get togethers. And my, you know, we were talking about like, we should really get and you know, we were using all the really, you know, cringy language. Like we should harvest our own meat and you know, all this really dumb shit. And my <laughs> father-in-law, this you know, good old boy looks at me. He's like, you know, I've got a freezer full of, you know, deer from like the past six years that I go get every year and you're not harvesting yeah. shit, shooting it. And it's right there. <laughs> um, so you know, immediately brought down a peg, but it's like, Oh, so he gave us some ground venison and, you know, we tried yeah. it. We were eating it. delicious food. You know, did we see like a performance gain from switching from, you know, grass fed beef to, you know, wild game? I don't know. Uh, probably not, but it was good. It sure. was a mental thing. And that prompted me to buy a bow. You know, I, I don't know why, uh, I had no interest in rifle hunting at the time. So got a hand-me-down bow and just kind of started the journey. Yeah. You started hard. I mean, you're going to start with the bow and say, oh, I, I want to be a hunter. Okay. Let's get a bow. I've seen people on social media do this. I've seen others looks easy enough, but yeah. I mean, from reading your book, <laughs> the, uh, uh, maybe not as easy as, uh, as the social media influencers might make it sound. So tell me about yeah. that journey. You got your bow. You got a buddy who's, he said, let's go practice with this and let's, let's be hunters. What yeah, were uh, people laughing at you? My ex-wife included. Yeah. It was one of those <laughs> things because I grew up in South Carolina, a rural area, but you know, I was surrounded by people who would hunt, but I never went hunting, you know? So I, at this mm -hmm. time, I think I was like 28, 29 years old. So, you know, getting up close to my thirties and I never hunted all of a sudden I'm like, I want to hunt and I want to hunt with a bow and I'm going to get a hand-me-down bow from a buddy who's a little shorter than me and I'm just going to make it work. Um, so <laughs> in the book, I chronicle like some of the setting up a range and hucking arrows into my neighbor's you know, roofs, things like that. All the stuff you don't yeah. want to be honest about, but happened, you know, couldn't even pull yeah. my bow back, dry fired it the whole lot. And, you know, <laughs> learned the hard way, but you know, for all the bad that comes out of social media, like seeing those influencers was a, you know, to be cheesy, an influence on me. It gave me some confidence. Yeah. Like, Hey, like, this person can do it. I can figure it out. Um, I'm hard headed enough to, and there's a plenty of YouTube videos and going back to technology, the, one of the amazing things is just the readily available amount of information, whether that's YouTube, whether that's, you know, a social media platform. Like if you do want to learn, there's available resources that are easy to consume. Cause when I grew up, my granddad always pushed me. He's like, you want to learn something, read a book. And that's what I was raised mm -hmm. on. So I love it. And that's one of the reasons mm -hmm. I like to write books. But you know, now you don't have to even do that. You can go and watch a two minute video on how to pull a bow back and then just hope that you, you know, figure it out. And that's what I did. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you talk about the mass amount of information that's out there free. YouTube's yep. obviously a big one. And I think that's the whole reason why we have an air brackets for those who aren't watching and they're listening influencers. And some people hate the name. Some people love the name, but essentially there's so much information out there that these people become information concierges and you say, well, I like that person or I like what they're doing. Um, maybe that'll shortcut me from having to sift through everything that's out there and I'll just, I'll just follow their steps, ABC. And, and that's, 
why I think the, uh, the whole influencer trend kind of came about and you're right. Is it good? Is it bad? I don't know. Depends on what you're looking at and depends on how you want to use it. But clearly, uh, it turned out for the best for you if it got you outside and it, and it got you hunting. Yep. Um, yeah. So when you first started out, I know you write in the book, you figured, okay, I, I learned how to do this. I'm going to be out and, uh, I'll get myself a deer. I just got to sit up in a tree stand, a deer will walk by and I'll take this thing. Maybe I got to wait a little bit, but it's going to happen. That wasn't quite the story, was it? Nope. It, it, it went probably, and one of the things that I hope, and I've gotten feedback on the book is, you know, people who've even hunted their whole lives kind of appreciate, you know, these overlooked aspects. Like, uh, I mentioned as I thought about pig hunting and deer hunting for the first time, you know, I had every scenario painted in my head. By this time I'd shot thousands of arrows. I could do it with confidence, never shot at an animal. You know, mm. I, we got our ex-wives FBI agents to heckle us while we shot to kind of, you know, we knew we were going to get buck fever. So we wanted to do that. And, and yeah. to this day, I've never had buck fever, I think, thanks to that section or session. So yeah, that was a <laughs> you know, good investment on our part, but you know, I had every potential outcome mapped out in my head, except for the one that was most likely to happen, which was nothing. And that's what I talk about mm. in the book. So I sit for like two days in this tree where a deer I was told would walk by, you know, I'd be able to put my pin on his vitals and you know, that's it. That's, that's the story. But all I saw were squirrels. So, right. you know, you, you're never prepared fully for what the experience is going to be like. And honestly, like a lot of hunting is really boring. You know, it's a lot of time mm. for self-reflection and, you know, battling with your own ego and realizing that you're not really hot shit and, you know, nature really owns you at all times of the day. So. Can you talk about battling with your ego when you're out there? Cause I know when I'm out hunting or I'm in the mountains or I'm hiking and I'm out in the water surfing, whatever it is, I'm, I'm isolated. I'm out there inevitably. Yep. The brain starts going and things start coming up. You're having fights are, are reoccurring for me anyways. And it takes a few days for the brain to kind of shut off and to kind of move to a more positive area. What's it like for you? And when you say battling the ego, what do you mean? Well, I've been very fortunate, Travis, in that I have, I grew up in combat sports where your ego gets decimated, um, constantly. And I'll give a poignant example, and this might make a few people laugh. So my, uh, my first year of high school, I was on the wrestling team. Um, never wrestled before, just got a whim. I wanted to wrestle and started doing it was not terrible, but I was on like the junior team, right? So not the varsity team. Mm -hmm. We go to our first match against our rival school who was like, you know, state champions, blah, blah, blah. Well, the 135 pound wrestler on the varsity team got sick that day. So okay. this is the first time that both of my parents, my sister, girlfriend are coming to watch me do JV. But I get bumped up to varsity because this guy is sick. The opponent I'm going against is a two-time state champion. So my first real wrestling experience, I go out and I go to the little board to sign in. My parents, everybody's there watching. They're like, oh, it's Zach. I have this ridiculous headgear because I wasn't cool yet. I didn't know all the cool gear, so I looked like a dork. <laughs> I 
I sign it at the table, Travis. I turn around to go into the mat to go actually wrestle this guy who's inevitably going to beat my ass, trip over the mat, land on my face, bust my nose. I get blood time before the match starts. <laughs> I get a tampon shoved up my nose. And then in a singlet, in a cold gym, I get like mercy killed by this guy in like 20 seconds. So, you know. Oh, man. With all your family and this, friends watching. Exactly. You know, so that was like my first experience with like really just crushing your ego and realizing it doesn't exist. But what I meant with the conversation about battling your ego for me, I've always had comparison issues. I think a lot of people do. Sure. And influencers and social media propagated that at the beginning of my hunting journey. So like mm. seeing the campaign, seeing the Joe Rogan, seeing the, you know, John Dudley's of the world out there just killing it. You know, every you know post is about this great kill. You know, I had built up in myself, like I should be able to do that. Like that is the experience I'm going to have. That is what hunting is like. And so when mm -hmm. I was out there and I wasn't experiencing those things, I wasn't having those successes. I was running into things that maybe they didn't talk about or, you know, not by them intentionally leaving it out, but they've been doing it for so long. You know, you kind of forget the steps along the way. And mm -hmm. that was causing me to have these battles with my ego. Like, what is wrong with me? Like, why am I not being able to have these experiences like these guys are? And that's the ego battle I'd have, like sitting in a tree stand. Like, what am I doing wrong? Like, you know, I should be able to have the same thing they are. And the answer mm -hmm. is no, I would put my ego aside, you know, I'm new. I, I don't know what I'm doing. I, I am on my own journey and running my own race, but I let some of those things sneak in. And that's what, you know, that's my ego trap personally. And I get caught in that sometimes mm. and I have to check myself on it. Well, I guess the algorithm doesn't really support people sitting in a tree stand, freezing cold and, uh, going home. <laughs> and yeah. posting that over and over again. I mean, that's they. so it can build an unreal expectation for new hunters out there based on what people are posting. You know, oftentimes I've seen with some of these influencers, um, it's not always their animal that they're standing beside and they might not say it's their animal, but yeah. they're standing beside an animal and people will look at this and be like, how is this person always going out and always successful? And maybe yeah. they're not taking into account the fact that they'll hunt in groups and one person and a group of however many was successful and everyone had their picture taken there. So it's, um, how would you, how would you describe hunting with your experience now to somebody who's looking to get into it? Yeah. And I think that's kind of part of, you know, was my mission with this book, because as I talk to people, you know just like anybody else, I, I feel like, <laughs> you know, you start CrossFit or you meet somebody who just started CrossFit, you know, they're never going to shut the fuck up. It's CrossFit this, CrossFit right. that, you know, right. and same with like jujitsu, same with hunting. And I'm not opposed to that. So when I first started hunting and I took my first animal, everybody within a 300 foot radius of me at any time of the day <laughs> was hearing about hunting and the benefits and how you're going to be healthier and connect with yeah. nature and all um, but to answer that question about like what I would say to people is I have been getting a lot of feedback that there are people out there like me who are adult onset hunters or mm. adult people who are curious about learning to hunt as an adult, but the barriers mm. of entry, including like influencers who are posting these, you know, trophy shots. Again, I'm not opposed to that, but you know, these kind of sure. success measures, you know, 
I think there's a little bit of an intimidation factor. And what mm. I wanted to do was like, it's right to be intimidated because it is an intimidating sure. thing. But to let people know that unless you're going out with tons of guides and paying top dollar, which is also okay. And I did some of that too, to beat down the learning curve, mm. you're going to fail. You're going to be met with morally compromising decisions to make that you might not have expected getting into hunting. You're mm -hmm. going to have to get legitimately elbow deep in an animal at some point or another and learn as you go and maybe waste meat, even though, you know, most people getting in are like the, you know, wanton waste. Like I want to harvest everything of the animal, which is great. And I do that too, but along the sure. way you're going to mess up and you're going to, you know, disrespect an animal in your own eyes. If that's the mentality you have, and I want people to know that you have to go through that. You know, mm. it's part of the journey is that you're going to have to learn and push your boundaries, you know, morally, physically in a lot of instances, and not to be afraid of that and recognize that mm. it's not going to necessarily match probably what got you interested, which are the influencers or the people who are, you know, celebrity hunters and things of that nature. Well, when I'm looking at some of the pictures that you have in the book there, I see uh, Vortex Optics um, bino pouch, uh, Benchmade yeah. knife, uh, and I'm seeing a little bit of a trend. I think I saw some first light gear in there, and it looks like some of your purchasing decisions may have been influenced by a very popular uh, Netflix show, Meat Eater. Would that be a fair yeah. assessment? Yeah, of course it is. I mean, it's uh, it's part and parcel. And I'm sure like they have doubled down and they're making a great killing on people who are getting curious about it. But yeah, I mean, that is mm -hmm. you know, purchasing power. So one of the things I do in my role now is ad monetization algorithms, right? So okay. of course, you know, you're paying for ad space, you're paying for eyeballs of people who have similar interests as you. And of course I was fed from the beginning of my journey, you know, Steve Ranella, uh, Vortex, stuff. I mean, I've got a vortex optic up there, you know, I've yeah. got freaking knock on releases the whole lot. Yeah. So it, yeah, yeah. it's, it goes with the territory and I'm not ashamed of that. You know, and you no. get dogs for it too. Like I wear Sitka, right? I started sure. hunting yeah. at a time where I was able to afford, you know, nice camo and yeah. you know, all the people that I followed were Sitka. So I was like, well, monkey see monkey do. Um, I'm going to buy this. So of course you get ragged yeah. by people along the way, but it, it's, <laughs> I'm not it's ashamed. It's part and parcel. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, talking about, uh, guides. Now I've never hunted with a guide. I'm fortunate enough to have a Ballard, good friend of mine, who's uh, quite accomplished in hunting that I can, uh, typically lean on for, uh, for advice and, uh, assistance. Uh, but going the guide route is, I think, a fantastic way to shortcut a, uh, the learning experience. And when you look at, like, for example, on Sitka's advertising, uh, there's quite often acknowledgements to the guides who have taken their pro hunters out hunting. So e even the pros are out there doing that if they want to be getting that trophy animal or have a success rate that's going to be something they can blog about or Instagram about. But you went out with, in your book with some guides and I had a very couple of humbling experiences. And if you're willing to talk about that outside of the book here, I'd love to chat about that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, guides are not something that I had on my agenda, right? Like 
for me, when I started, like it was my in-laws who quote guided me out of the gate. Right. So these are the Mm -hmm. guys in touching back on the Sitka and the stuff I had, like when I started hunting and the first time I went deer hunting on my in-laws, uh, hunting lease, you know, it got muted chuckles because my buddy and I showed up in brand new Sitka camo. Meanwhile, you know, we've never killed an animal and my father-in-law who's probably (laughs) killed more deer than I ever will in my life, you know, sitting there in Walmart camo, like, okay, Walmart camo and jeans. He's like, I I don't get it, but you know, you guys do you spend the money on what you want to spend your money on. Um, but he was in, for all intents and purposes, my first guide. So I can't say that I never did guided hunting. And I feel like most people do, unless you go the full DIY solo route and Mm. good on you. But when Mm. I moved out to Idaho and, you know, a little foreshadowing for people, I've talked about my ex-wife, um, a little bit after my journey, we ended up getting a divorce, pretty amicable, but I was left at this crossroads where I was like, what do I want to do? Where can I go? I had no children. The, The opportunities were endless. And I had visited Idaho and I knew I wanted to hunt elk. I wanted to hunt antelope. I wanted to learn to trap. So I was like, well, you know, this unexpected event happened in my life. So I'm just going to pack up my car and drive to Idaho, which is exactly what I did. Um, Mm -hmm. Got out there, found a place in the, in the mountains way, way back. You know, our place opens up to 3000 acres of national forest land. And I was like, how am I going to learn to hunt elk? You know, like I've only sat in a tree stand for some pigs and deer. I can't bugle. I can now pretty good too, if I might add, but I couldn't bugle. I, I didn't know how to do anything outside of hiking and that I sucked at that pretty good when I got up to elevation, it turns out. Um, <laughs> and you know, I decided, you know, I had the means that I wanted to go with a guide to take me on my first archery elk hunt. So I, yeah. Mm. So also another foreshadowing that I have a new company that is launching at the Western hunt expo called the outfitter.guide. Um, but right. it's kind of based on my own personal experience, which was I went to Google, I got dumped in the lap of a bunch of, you know, top of the funnel companies like bookyourhunt.com, all of which do a great job where you can pick like an animal, sure. a species, state, whatever, and they'll give you a list of guides. But that's where they yep. cut off. And with that, I found a guide in Stanley, Idaho. He's like, yep, I've got a one-on-one archery opening in you know eight months for September, you know, send me half of the deposit or send me half of the whole price of the hunt, which was expensive. You know, it's close to six grand for a seven day, you know, horseback in wall tent hunt to my Mm -hmm. PO box in a state, three States away in Arizona. And I'll see you in eight months. (laughs) So, you know, I thought I was getting scammed. I'm like, well, fuck it. Like, let's, let's do this. So I sent the check, it cleared. And for those eight months, I was just kind of left scratching my head. Like I'd email occasionally and he'd be like, I'm sorry, I'm on my combine. Fuck off. Um, you know, I want to be doing these other things. <laughs> typical. Important. Yeah. Typical guide, mm-hmm. right? They want to be doing other yeah. stuff, not customer management. Right. Meanwhile, I was talking to my now wife and I'm like, man, I don't even know if I'm going to get fed. And so when the time of the hunt came around eight months later, I was praying that the 10 cliff bars she packed me, we know would last me the seven days if I didn't get food. <laughs> but, you know, I ended up going out there, you know, my ass is sore from riding a horse for the first time in 10 years into the back country. And that experience with a guide just beat down that learning curve. Like I was like that annoying kid. I'm sure they hated me. I was like, why did we do this? Why did we stop here? What is that? Help? You know, all of that stuff. And ultimately didn't yeah. harvest an animal. 
the first year, you know, I missed twice. So go figure. And, uh, you know, it is what it is and you're devastated and you go through those normal emotions, but it helped. So, you know, mm. that experience with guiding beat down that learning curve so sharply. And I did it again the next year, um, with the same guide, went to a slightly different area. Um, but same story, you know, didn't end up harvesting an animal, you know, weather and everything else. And then this past year I went and did my own DIY up in West Yellowstone, you know, was calling elk in myself doing the whole lot. So, you know, it was, from start to finish on my elk hunting journey with archery, you know, two years with a guide to now doing two years DIY with some success. It's, it was mm. worth it. Right. Yeah. The, the range of emotions that go through on a miss, I mean, at least it was a clean miss, right? Yeah. But those range of emotions that go through are, um, uh, are something to behold. And there's a mental management process that a person has to work through in order to get themselves up and there's a feeling of possible humiliation of what are other people going to think of me? And, uh, man, I spent all of this money and the pressure is on and I totally jammed and all, all of these other feelings, I'm sure <laughs> that you must've yeah. been going through your head. How did you deal with that? Yeah. Well, it's funny you say that, like, you know, I didn't have an Instagram, you know, I wasn't like active on social media. So I didn't have that added pressure to be like, Hey guys, I'm going on this guided hunt, you know, look at me do this. Oh, I miss. Yeah. So I, I feel for people who are very active there or like put it out mm. to the universe. Like they're going to do this thing. But you know, even in my close bubble, you know, that I did put it out there. So my family's like, what you're spending, what to go where to do what? Mm. And then I come back, you know, they, people who don't hunt, you know, a lot of times have this, mentality like oh you just go out and you shoot an animal you know that it's not this big involved thing that takes patience skill and you know, name all the other adjectives you want to mm. and you know that the likelihood of you know missing an animal is way higher than success like i think the area we mm. were in for archery had like a 13 percent success rate you know so mm. you're paying money uh to learn more than you're paying money to successfully harvest an animal that was my viewpoint but other people didn't mm -hmm. see that way. So I did have those emotions after missing that elk of, you know, embarrassment, right? Yeah. Sure. I dreaded going home to my, you know, now wife to be like, oh, hey, honey, you know, all that money we spent. Uh, and I promised you I was going to make you this beautiful elk steak dinner. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Uh, you know, my family, the ones who were already thinking I was, you know, loony for spending that amount of money, they're like, well, you're still loony. You still have some screws loose. That's confirmed. <laughs> and, you know, of course, if you have a good friend group, which I do have a very close tight knit group of friends, some who hunt, some who don't, I'm still getting ribbed to this day. So, you know, it is. <laughs> well, that's you know, what friends do, right? Friend. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. I'm in a group chat with some buddies um, who don't necessarily hunt, but it goes without fail, like once a week. It's like, oh, Zach, are you out observing elk again? Or, you know, something to that effect. So <laughs> lives to this day, but, you know, it helps. Like that kind of humor, that, you know, self-depreciation. And for me, it was coming to terms with, it is a lifelong pursuit. And yes, I'm making up for lost time because I didn't start as a young kid, but you know, it's a journey and it's not one after you have a few experiences that you can expect to just master. Like it is time out in the woods. It's, you know, those missed shots, that morality bending I talked about, like when I got into trapping, like when you get into situations where you have to make tough decisions, 
Those don't mm-hmm. come from a book or YouTube. It comes from time in the field. And yes, there are shortcuts, guides, you know, mentors, things like that. But ultimately it's being out there. And that's what I had to come to terms with and coach myself up on to get over those mm. you know, really emotional misses and you know, failures and disappointments. You know, I guess, and you call it a failure. Well, a few things you brought up when you talk with the social media people and the pressure that they must feel advertising to go on a hunt. I think a lot of them just advertise afterwards if they're successful and they'll just post a little bit after, Hey, going on this hunt and here's this and Hey, great yeah. success. And if, it, but, um, then, you know, people say, oh, my, my hunt was a failure. Well, how come? Well, I didn't get an animal. Well, maybe from somebody starting out into hunting and that's looked at the ultimate result there. I yeah. wouldn't say that that's, that's a failure personally. How, how would you define success? for yourself on a hunt. Yeah. I mean, you're hundred percent right. And you know, all of those hunts, let me put it this way. Every hunt I've been on, which a lot of them have been failures, failures in the sense of not harvesting an animal. Um, but every single one of them, I have learned an absurd amount, either about myself, about the animal or about Mm. what not to do, (laughs) which then I can apply for the next hunt on, you know, what to try not to replicate. Um, mm-hmm. so, you know, failure, failure might not be the right word because I did learn, mm-hmm. I just failed in harvesting an animal, um, right. which you know is ultimately the goal, but I don't sit and beat myself up saying, Hey Zach, you failed, you suck, blah, blah, blah. But I did fail mm-hmm. at harvesting an animal and I'm pretty damn good at that. Uh, so <laughs> just trying to get used to saying those words. <laughs> Well, one piece that I'm really curious about, and I think a lot of other people would be, is that little bit of a piece in between city life and living out in the woods. And I, you've discussed, there's a little, perhaps some of the impetus was, um, the life-changing event of the separation from your, from your ex-wife. And, but it seems like to me anyways, when I read through the book, that that wasn't the piece that pushed you to want to go out and write a book and live in the bush. It seems like there's something that was always kind of sitting in the back of your head, maybe dormant for a while. And something happened in you that made you decide to jump in head first. And I think a lot of people are fearful of doing what you've, what you've successfully done. So I'm curious about that little piece there. Yeah. It's funny. We, so when I wrote this book, I worked with a, a company called Scribe Media down in Austin. Uh, it was co-founded by Tucker Max. I don't know if you know who he is. He's a New York Times bestselling author. He wrote the books, I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell, kind of like the misogynistic uh, <laughs> yeah, stories okay. of his time in law school. He's changed a lot, but he's very much on the sustainability track now. He has a farm, kids, you know, harvesting his own bison and you know, grow, like raising bees, all sorts of stuff. But he's an amazing writer. So mm. when I went down and was working with them kind of on the synopsis of the book, talking about the intros, you know, part of the exercise, like, who are you writing this for? You know, what, what is the mm. persona of the person that you're writing it for? And when it gets down to it, I wrote out this persona and I realized that when I wrote it, that it was me, which makes total sense, right? It was me, yep. you know, five, six years ago. But it was like for that middle management man or woman, right? Who is working a corporate job, droning away. And they start to daydream occasionally and obviously bolster through the pandemic about, you know, okay, 
let's just hypothetically say everything breaks down or, you know, I can't mm. go buy toilet paper. There's no meat on the shelves. What would happen? And, you know, it was one of those things where in the persona I talked about it, and this was me, I always came up with excuses like, oh, I'd figure it out. Oh, I'd do this. But the reality is if you take away that ego, these are the readers who would sit there and be like, oh shit, my kids would die. Mm. Yeah, I literally don't know how to process an animal. Like even if I hit a deer with my car, I'd be throwing it whole on a fire and hoping there'd be something to salvage, you know, to, <laughs> to nibble on. And right. that's the reality. And that's the reality I was living in between those stages. Like I had this dormant ember, right? That I, I always loved mountain man stories as a kid. I always thought about living out in the woods. Um, I talk about in the book, like before the divorce happened, my wife and I happened to take a chance trip to Idaho um, mm. on one of our vacations and it hooked me. I saw all these animals and I was looking at her. This was pre-hunting and I was like, we're moving here one day. And she's like, yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Maybe 20 years when we retire, we'll buy a cabin or whatever. And I was like, no, you don't understand. Like I feel physically called here um, because mm. I saw the opportunity to learn and that experience coupled with the true feelings I had underlying knowing that if something broke and I didn't have kids at the time and that's more personal to me now with two kids, but right. I, I wouldn't have been able to support my wife. I wouldn't have been able to support kids had I had them. Like we literally would have starved to death eventually, or, you know, had to join some you know, walking dead type commune and hope for the best and hope that people who were, you know, a little bit more in tune with earth would be able to help provide us food or teach us. But, you know, that time, you know, the time to learn is not when, you know, shit hits the fan. It's to take that proactive right. step. That's what, you know, pushed me over the edge to start before the divorce. And then, like you said, that catalytic event in my life just happened to be the point where I just went all in. Were you nervous about that? Like, what if I go out there and I'm making a terrible decision? Like, I'm I'm escaping away. Like, did you, did you have a large friend group in... Uh, Louisiana, where you're from, a bunch of people that you would interact on a daily basis and were concerned about a population of 35 and in Atlanta, Idaho there was, were yeah. these things kind of in your head? A little bit, you know, we, we had a really tight group with our jujitsu gym. All right. I mean, those were the mm. people we did everything with. We were traveling all the time. So, you know, you know there was concern there and I was definitely going to miss those folks, but there was also a little bit of, you know, if anyone's been through a divorce, you'll know this feeling. Like I did just want to get away. I didn't want people to be mm. giving me advice. Like, Oh Zach, you know, it's okay. You did. I just wanted to tell people to F off. Like I just wanted to go, right. You know, people always say like, I just want to go hide in the woods. So I did. Mm. <laughs> so yeah, I didn't right. have that fear at the outset. Um, but when I got out there and I realized I had no idea what the hell I was doing and I talk about it in the book, like I didn't mm. know how to start a fire in my wood burning stove. And it gets down to like, yeah, you know, we'll get down to like negative 18 sometimes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm sitting there jackhammering, freezing in my room, wondering why my fire is not working. I just don't have the flu open. Right. So yeah. it was when I got there <laughs> that I was learning all those hard lessons. Like, like, did I get in over my head? Like, did I make this impulse decision to just change everything in my life? And, you know, thankfully I had to stick with it <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. for a lot of different reasons. And, you know, obviously came out on the other end, learning a lot and still learning a lot, but. 
No kidding. Well, Idaho sounds like a great place. Good friend of mine, Carl Fox. He's uh, from Idaho, lives up here in Canada and he's always going on about it. And, uh, you know, I think maybe in the next month or so, I'm probably going to head down there and just check it out just so I get a better idea of what this is all about. Uh, Brad we're, Brooks, he owns our galley. What's that? We're about, we're about in Idaho. Boise. So probably very okay. different from where you're at. Well, no. So, you know, it's funny. Um, we actually have a place in Boise now. So it's funny about, um, you know, we live full time up in Atlanta, Idaho, which is the town of 35 people, but you know, we're yeah. kind of on this arc, right? Like my wife and I, and our two kids, we've been living the mountain life, but you know, with two infants, right. We're having more and more doctor's appointments. So we ended up getting a place mm -hmm. in Boise for, you know, a small place just so we could have a landing spot when the roads avalanched in or rock slid in, uh, which happens quite a bit and happened last week. So, you know, Boise is our, our closest metropolitan area. So mm -hmm. uh, the reason I say that is if you're in Boise, we're just a cool three-hour, four-wheel drive uh, ride up the road. So if you want to come stop by and check out Atlanta, Idaho, <laughs> you totally should. It's I think it was three hours and 40 Idaho. minutes. I think it was three yeah. hours and 40 minutes because I actually checked it out. I, um, okay. I might actually come out to the, uh, to the area just so I have an understanding of where it is that you're from. And, uh, okay. Well, uh, well, do not it, follow Google Maps. Talk to me first because Google Maps will lead you astray, <laughs> uh, which it did for me the first time that I went out to look for the at the house that I ended yeah. up buying. In winter, it took me about yeah. 280 miles the wrong way to a road that was what? avalanched in. I had to turn around and make the six-hour journey back just to <laughs> uh, go check it out. So, Yeah, yeah, it's always fun watching those maps. I remember we were in Greece and we had a place there. I spent a couple of months over in Skopelos and uh, the maps would take everybody down some old abandoned road and we're like, okay, let's see how far these people get. Cause it just gets narrower and narrower on super yeah. steep cliff sides. And yeah, having the wherewithal to question technology such as Google or artificial intelligence, I think is a, a good life skill for people to have. Yeah. One we all need to continue to, uh, refine, but. Yeah. Well, I, I really like the fact that, you know, that you just figured it out. I was having dinner with a friend a couple weeks ago and, uh, he's got a sailboat and I said, oh, you picked up a sail. I didn't know you knew how to sail. He's like, Travis, it's a sheet and it catches a wind. Anybody can sail. Right. <laughs> I said, huh. He's like, I mean, there's, I'm sure a lot more to it, but I mean, you just keep zigzagging yourself over if you got to go into the wind, but you know, anyone can sail a boat at the base level of it. And so now that's something that we use in our household. Uh, Jason, if you're listening, anyone can sail a boat. I, I like it. Anyone can purchase a compound bow and go hunting. Yes, there's a lot to it, but you didn't let that dissuade you. Uh, what out of the different ventures, cause you talk about hunting and trapping, which ones presented the biggest challenge for you? Um, without a doubt trapping, you know, it's, yeah. uh, I, I would say that it's, the thing that I've taken the most to, but it's also the thing that's been the most difficult. Um, you know, for anybody who's ever set a foothold trap as an adult for the first time with a little, so for people who don't know, think about a regular trap, two metal jaws, really tight coil springs of steel. You crank them down, get them flat. And there's this little pan that you set under a little lip of metal. And you're playing with this thing that is meant to hold a very angry animal. And, you know, when you set it, it's nerve wracking because inevitably you will trap yourself 
and I did mm. and have many times over. Um, obviously they're non-lethal, they hurt in a lot of cases. Mm. Uh, but you know, that barrier of entry to do that, and then the the amount of study and the amount of intricacy that goes into trapping any animal, especially canines, I found out, like I said, they're way smarter than me. Uh <laughs> It is difficult, but actually pursuing trapping, you know, learning to actually talk about leveraging the whole animal, you know, taking the fur um, mm. for beaver, like leathering the tail, pulling out the mm. glands because you want to use them again and other lures and baits that you might be using. It is an exercise in using the whole animal when you do get one. And you become way better at like caping stuff out and, you know, butchering because you get to do it a lot. You get a lot more reps in, but I mm. think that it's made me a better like, archery hunter just because of the study that goes into it. And, you know, that includes beaver, otter, marten. There's just so many different animals that you get a really, you get like a PhD more quickly or an MBA in animal husbandry, just because you're out there all the time and you get to see tracks, you get to understand what they're doing in different scenarios, like if you walk in a different way, what are they going to react? If you don't descent mm. your traps well enough, are they going to do something and pee on your pan and embarrass you? Um, <laughs> like like it, what it, happened with the fox, right? Yeah, I think it was, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, and uh, it's happened with wolves and coyotes too. They're 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 smart animals, but yep, that's been the hardest learning curve for me, but also the most rewarding. And again, what I have found myself to be truly most drawn to, like I. I'm going archery mule deer hunting and javelina hunting next week in Arizona. I'm very excited about that, but I'd, I'd be a liar if I weren't excited to already get back to my trap lines to go check for beaver otter. Like yesterday I found the new dam upstream from us with a lodge that I had missed in the summer. So it's a, it's an exciting thing. Very cool. You know, my, my trapping experience basically boils down to trying to get rid of raccoons in the backyard and got some raccoons, got some skunks, um, uh, mostly live trapping, uh, conibear tried that actually for raccoons. I found they climb, they don't dig and they're shock yep. sensitive. So for a real cheap on Amazon, you can buy a, uh, a cattle guard and, uh, electric fence, put it at the top of your, uh, your wood fence. Never had a raccoon problem since <laughs> why I, why I went that route. Did you know that raccoons use a communal latrine? I did not know that. Look at that. I didn't know. Facts, I didn't. Right? Yeah. I didn't know this either until, uh, we bought our, our, well, our current house that we're in and there was great big piles of raccoon crap right in the middle of our yard. And I started looking into it and it turns out they will all come to the same spot and they'll use a, a communal latrine to go to the washroom. And so I was out there with slingshots and pellet guns and trying to do everything that, paprika, hot sauce, all the things that the internet says is good. And, uh, nothing was successful. Pelagons, they just kind of shrug a little bit if you snap them with that. So started doing the trapping and the, man, there's so many, the electric fence solved it, gone, never had a problem since. And skunks, have you ever trapped a skunk? Uh, I have, I have. And, uh, my wife is still, let's say how to put it. Yep going back to wanting to use the whole animal, like, you know, trying to extract skunk essence is, uh, right. an art, uh, not so much a science. Uh, <laughs> so okay. yeah, I, I'll leave it at that, but yeah, I have, uh, very interesting animals make beautiful pelts. Um, we have them up there. So 
trap them okay. if they step in a they step in one. I'm not really targeting them, but have caught them before. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I've been fortunate enough to never have gotten any stink on me, but uh, uh, live trap them, relocated them, cardboard shield, homebrew, whatever. As I'm trying to oh. uh, to to let them out, but um, I actually. After reading your book, I thought, you know what, I should learn more about trapping and I've reached out to the local, uh, British Columbia Trapping Association. They've got a three day awesome. course. So I, I got to check that out and, and see what it's about, but you did a course as well in trapping, didn't you? Yeah. Uh, well with Idaho, right. You have to have a trapper's license. So right. I went and did that and, and that was okay. You know, it was very basic. Like, Hey, here are some basic traps. You know, I didn't learn as much as I thought, but. I had my heart set on wolf trapping. That's a big thing out here in Idaho. You know, I was getting mm. to see firsthand how some of the, you know, wolf populations around where I live, because you can hear them, you can see them, you know, decimating elk and deer all around us. Right. You know, I was focused on that. And they have to have in Idaho a wolf trapper's license, you know, that allows me to take up to like 15 wolves every season. Um, right. That's where I learned a lot. Um, the The teacher there was a really great wolf trapper, you know, he actually went into kind of the, the science and the art behind it and talked about what you should, shouldn't do, like how you should go through these different processes. It was a mentorship thing for me. Uh, and that was helpful. You know, I still haven't trapped a wolf successfully to this date. Mm. I mean, they're super smart, but it helped me with all my other canine trapping. And since then, you know, I've gone to um, a bunch of different courses on it just out of my own curiosity, because there's so much to learn. And in fact, I'm going down to the Idaho Trappers Association uh, fur sale in two or three weeks here in Glens Ferry, Idaho, and going to be there signing books. But I'm planning to take a lot of the courses they have. They'll have, you know, different beaver type of approaches you can do for different scenarios. Mm. The list is endless on, you know, people who have experienced and had success doing things people, other people haven't, you know, and vice versa. So the community I have found with trapping has been way more welcoming for a newbie than the hunting community. That's not to say that I've really? been. Really? I have. Um, okay. And I think nice. it's partially because it's a little more accessible, maybe. You know, mm. it's, I'll have to give props. So Clay Newcomb with Meat Eater, I reached mm -hmm. out to him coldly to read my chapter on Bear, where I mentioned him as kind of a little bit of an inspiration. He took mm -hmm. the time to read it and said, hey, this looks good. You're allowed to use my name. I said, okay. But when I talked to Tom Miranda, who's, you know, a famous bow hunter, but, you know, cut his teeth trapping, very, you know, involved in the National Trappers Association. And then Rusty Kramer, who's the Idaho Trapper Association. Those guys didn't just like say, okay, hey, new guy, like, you know, uh, yeah, I'll read your stupid little chapter and give you a thumbs up. Like <laughs> you know, they said, this is awesome. Like, we're very glad you're here. What can we do to help you? And it was really? this kind of. Yeah, it was an effusive, like, I think because it's a little bit more on the periphery and it's a lot often under a lot more scrutiny, uh, mm. the things that go around it are, are a lot more tight knit and they want more people in. They want people who are you know, educated and can articulate the experience in a way that is honest, but also, you know, positive and talk about the benefits of it. And, you know, a guy, the Montana Trappers Association president, Chris Morgan, you know, he's been fantastic, giving me all sorts of stuff. And, you know, one of the things that my wife is equal parts happy and equal parts, you know, tired of it is mm. since the books come out, 
I've had more trappers send me boxes of their homemade lures and, you know, cat urine and other stuff. <laughs> so without fail, like at least once or twice a month, my wife will come in with like a soggy UPS box. <laughs> that smells like, I think this one's for you and hand it over. So it's just been super wel- welcoming is really what it boils that down is to. so cool. Yep. You know, I always... I always like talking to people who've got a fair bit of experience in a certain field and asking them like, what have you learned that might surprise someone? Like I, I asked a friend, he's a firefighter and I said, you know, I know about fire. I like fire. What, what can you teach me about fire? What did you learn in your, uh, in your training that, uh, might surprise people? And he says, oh, everything burns in a gaseous state. Well, I guess nearly everything. Nothing yeah. burns in a solid state. You heat it up hot enough, gas, it'll gas off and that's what burns. I'm like, huh. I like that. And I use that for when teaching fire making, that's if someone just keeps that in the back of their head, okay, I can't just jump to a big piece of wood cause it's got to get hot enough to gas off. And that's what it is going to actually make the fire for trapping. What have you learned that maybe surprised wow. you that you wouldn't have thought of prior to getting into it? Oh man. Um, that's going to be hard to boil down to just one. So let me think about like, what is the most beneficial and probably painful lesson that I've ever learned in trapping. Um, let me think about what way to get something that's succinct and able to be taken away. I mean, other than animals are just way smarter than me. Um, it would be river otters. And again, this is not going to be like a piece of advice you'll be able to take away like your friend. So I apologize for that in the first place. But river otters are hell of a swimmer, man. They are fast. Oh, yeah. I mean, you might see it in the zoo, so it might not be a lot of new stuff. But I actually had one of the coolest experiences of my life um, about a month ago, right at the start of otter at otter season here in Idaho. I was out trapping beaver and... uh, I got out with my headlamp and I was about to get in the water to set some conor bears and some foothold traps. And I saw a beaver Yeah. and I was like, Oh, cool. Um, and normally when you see a beaver, they, they scurry, right. And it dipped in the water. Sure. I went over there and I was shining down with my headlight and this beaver is just hauling through the water. I'm like, what is this thing doing? And why is it not afraid of me? And it kind of came up in the dark on the mound I was standing on near the side of the road. And I was like, well, that's weird. So I clapped my hands and it disappeared and went into the den got in the water, you know, chest high waders, you know, deep water. This beaver comes out and starts swimming circles around me. I'm like, this is like the coolest thing ever. And I really hope I don't get attacked by a beaver because a buddy of mine had just sent me some cheesy horror flick called Zombievers where like the end of the world and everything. <laughs> Seen it? Yep. So you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Seen um, it? Yeah. So I was afraid that was going to be the scenario, but you know, it yeah. went away, set my traps, Came back the next day and I had this beautiful, huge otter on a drowning wire. And what I realized is, you know, we had torn out that dam, we being the highway district, which I was the chairman of at the time for the rural area. And that empty den had been taken over by otter. So it was an otter that was swimming around me. You know, beaver aren't that fast in the water. Right. Okay. uh, But it was pretty cool. And, you know, hindsight being what it is, you know, they call otters river wolves for a lot of different reasons. Cause they can be pretty cranky little curious things and eat all our trout. Mm. So, uh, I was glad that I did not get attacked by an otter, 
But the coolest thing I've learned trapping is that otter are really fast and really cool swimmers and cool thing to have a little interaction with. That's pretty neat. I've never, I've seen them kind of going under the dock at one of the cabins. Uh, I'll see them as they kind of like just slink down into the river and then disappear. Never had the experience to watch them just zip around like that. That'd be pretty neat. Yeah. And I guess the only other thing to take away, if you start trapping, a lot of animals have bacula, you know, penis bones. And when you trap a lot of animals and you want to get into, you know, using everything, you know, you'll have an endless supply of Christmas gifts if you get into trapping. (laughs) Uh, So swizzle stick for you. (laughs) Exactly. So save money on Christmas, start trapping. Actually, a guy was killed by a beaver. I remember uh, uh, reading about that a number of years ago. I guess a thing came at him and bit him in his leg and he got his femoral. Apparently, if I recall correctly, he was actually killed by a beaver. The other weird one about, yeah. You know, seeing their teeth, like when you see their teeth and you like pull back Mm. their lips and you, you know, cape out their heads, their teeth are huge and they're like steel. So it's one of those things like I could see that, uh, yeah, totally happen, but what a bad way to go. As a kid, oh, it'd be terrible. Everyone would be laughing about that forever. Killed by a beaver. Are you kidding me? I remember as a kid, I had a beaver skull that I'd found and, um, it's got these kind of yellow teeth that are coming out, but you could pull the teeth and just keep on coming and coming and coming and curling all the white stuff. The, the teeth grow real far back into their head, which was something that was kind of an interesting one. Yeah. And I guess they always have to chew because their teeth are, they're always growing, right? That's my understanding. So yeah, they're, uh, constantly chewing and knocking trees over our road. So they're always at work. I know that's for sure. Here's another one that a lot of people raises an eyebrow when I mention it. I don't know if it's been your experience, if you've ever seen this, but driving through the tunnel, highway 99, we turn into Ladner. I look up on the right and like, what the hell is that thing up in a tree there? It looks like a beaver. Did you know that beavers can climb trees? You know, I did not know that. That's another, that's the second factor hitting with me was something that I feel like <laughs> I should know. But no, I'm going to start looking I didn't up know. Yeah. How the heck did this beaver get up in the tree? I've never in a million years would have thought that there'd be a beaver. I, I pulled over and I'm looking at them. That's a beaver up there in the tree. Anyways. Yeah, the, um, the beaver facts are, are endless. Like one of the cool things in Idaho, like in the Frank church wilderness, I think it was in the twenties, thirties, I might have the dates wrong, but you know, there had been a, a dearth of population and they needed some deforesting effort. So they parachuted in a bunch of beavers in anticipation of, a. Uh, you know, trying to deforce it. And there's like, there's like a commemorative coin in Idaho or something like of a parachuting beaver and, you know, all sorts of weird stuff like that. So then it's a rich history. And that's what has kind of drawn me to beaver, you know, like this one on my wall and, you know, it, for us, you know, Canada, the U S you know, the Canadian fur trade and the American fur trade, like that's what our countries were founded on. That's where you know, we all yeah. started was in the rivers, yeah. trapping beaver and, feeling that connection today, like as cheesy as it sounds. And you'd asked about like what I've taken to, like being in the water, in the snow, in the winter with a trap on my back, you know, trying to target an animal that people have been doing for hundreds of years is one of the coolest freaking things that I've ever done. And it just, it makes me happy every time I do it, regardless of success rate. That is awesome. Are you typically using the compound bow? Cause I saw one of the pictures I look like in, uh, the bottom corner, there's a fluted barrel with a muzzle brake on a, uh, a rifle, but 
reading how you write and you write very well. Um, it doesn't seem like you really come from a gun background though. Uh, no, um, you know, I've done pistol shooting. So like my ex-wife, you know, FBI special agent, like we would go shoot all the time. Like I'm not unfamiliar with weapons. I grew up with weapons in the household, you know, shooting with Mm. uncles, like rifle, stuff like that. But, um, that rifle you see is my 300 PRC. Uh, it was gifted to me by, uh, a buddy of mine who is a hunter, a rifle hunter. Uh, Mm. and he and I owned a company together and one year we weren't doing so great. So he's like, I'm going to build us custom rifles. I'm like, all right, that's fine. Better than taking a check. So he built this beautiful 300 PRC, put a great optic on. He's like, this is going to be great. Blah, blah, blah. You know, it mm-hmm. sat in my closet for a year just because, you know, for me, I shot thousands of arrows before I even went and sat in my tree stand for the first time and never saw a deer. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's a level of comfort for me to be able to go out and attempt to take an animal with something. So I did actually in this past year, I ended up doing a course here in Boise, Idaho. It was a long range shooting course. So, you know, they Mm. taught me how to take that gun out to a thousand yards, you know, a little over a thousand yards. Um, But since then, you know, I set up some steel behind her house in Atlanta and I've shot it maybe three or four times. So it's one of those things where, you know, I wouldn't, if you get said, Hey Zach, you can go on a doll sheep hunt tomorrow, but it's going to be rifle, you know, unless I'm 200 yards, which maybe we could do or zeroed. I'm probably not going to take a shot just because I'm not comfortable. That doesn't mean that that's not on my docket. Like I would love to be proficient at rifle hunting. Like, but what Mm -hmm. I've learned, you know, my false assumption coming into hunting was that archery is this, you know, again, this was my pretension and ego speaking. Like this is closer to, yeah, exactly. It's this, I'm going to be close and have this experience with animal. Um, Rifle hunting in the Mountain West, in Canada, and the U.S., I don't care if you're with a stick, a knife, a bow, a gun. It is hard no matter what you do. Mm-hmm. And especially like the rifle seasons, you know, like for elk, don't tend to be when they're as vocal. So, you know, you right. have to be a little bit further away. And, you know, I have an appreciation for that now, just bow hunting, that, you know, there's half the time that I've seen animals that I don't even know if I'd be able to take with a rifle. Um, and there's mm. just a good a chance that I woof a shot with a rifle as I do with a bow, you know, given <laughs> practice. So yeah, it, it's something I want to do and I have the equipment now. It's just a matter of making it a prioritization and it just hasn't bubbled up to the top for me yet. But anybody who wants to come take me rifle hunting in Idaho and teach me the ropes and, uh, you know, please come out and let's go. Well, let's put that out there for anyone in Idaho. I'd say come up to BC, but for anything big game here, you got to be with a guide. Hey, I can take you out for waterfowl, but you can do that pretty easily where you are too. And in fact, back in Louisiana, some, some great waterfowling down there. Yeah. I I was bummed, you know, it was one of those things that catch 22, like the, the what ifs, you know, not growing up hunting. I think about all the missed opportunities and places that I have lived, like, um, you know, obviously South Carolina. Tennessee, good deer hunting young. Louisiana, I missed out on waterfowl and upland type birds. I lived overseas mm. for a long time. So I lived in Kyrgyzstan where they have some amazing like, you know, Ibex and other hunting opportunities. Uh, you know, I lived in the Caucasus Mountains in Georgia and Russia, you know, awesome cool. hunting opportunities. So I missed out on all those is what I'm saying uh, by not getting into it younger. Hey, you're into it now. That's all that matters, right? Yep. 
when you're putting this book together, did you start out on your journey thinking, I'm going to document along the way, this is going to be a book, or did you at some, at what point did you decide that this was going to be a book? Yeah, I, I didn't have it planned out. Like I've always written, I've written one other book. Um, you know, it was kind of about like artificial intelligence ish stuff. Um, okay. I've always liked to write. I've always journaled. I've always done these things. I've blogged. I've, I've always liked long form writing because for me, mm. I have such like a monkey mind, like to get a clear thought out, I need to spend time putting it on paper, digital or otherwise. Mm. Um, and that's just my medium for getting like my own thoughts across. Like if I'm frustrated with my wife, I will say, Hey, let's not talk right now because I'm going to have word vomit. That's just going to piss you off more. So let me go away, you know, <laughs> put it down on paper and then we can talk about it in a little while. And that's worked well for me. Um, but when I went through that divorce, like my ex-wife and I, despite the kind of unexpected nature of it, we were really kind to each other. And that was like, my mantra from the second that I heard about it is like, I am not going to react to this in anger. And that took a lot from me to not mm. react in anger about the situation that I happened to find myself in. And so I actually went and was thinking, you know, after a few months and I'd been in Idaho, I was like, you know, she and I were still friends. We were being very kind to each other. I'm like, I should write a book about like, you know, how to get through divorce, ego-free and, still come out with some version of a friendship, right? Mm. You know, if, if that's what you wanted. So sure. that was kind of my initial thought for a book. But then as I kind of meditated on it in the woods, you know, I was like, that's not the book that I'm I'm writing. Like this, this is a real true just journey. Like the divorce is part of that. And like the way I reacted is, you know, good. And maybe I could write that book one day. But, you know, for me, it was this just transformative experience. And as I was, journaling, just as I always did, I started seeing these stories come together. And, you know, I thought in my head, like, there's no way I could write a hunting or trapping book because all I'm doing is failing in, in my mind, mm. the way we defined it <laughs> earlier, right? I'm not harvesting animals. Sure. I'm making a lot of mistakes along the way. And like, who, who would want to read that? Right. But as I thought about it more and I talked to more people and I like tried to be honest, because when I went through this divorce, I'm like, you know what? I want to just be honest. It's much as I can the rest of my life. Like I just want to be open, even if it's embarrassing. Mm. So I'd have conversations with people and hunters and they'd be like, Oh dude, I went through that too. And I'm like, you did, but like, you seem like you got your shit together. Like, no, no, I went through that too, man. And those kind of started to compound. And I was like, going back to how we discussed about writing for that persona. I'm like, there's gotta be so many more people out there that are just like me. Cause I am not some unique snowflake. I am, you know, a Joe Blow who happened to be in, you know, the corporate world, you know, a million other people just like me who have these thoughts, but, you know, have yeah. some mental barrier. So that was why and how it came about, but it started with a completely different idea. Interesting. Uh, and you mentioned meditating out in the woods. Is that something you do often? Mm. You know, I talk about it with my wife. My wife now is very religious. Um, I grew up in the South religious household, but I never took to religion so much. Like I explored sure. the world. I was lived overseas for a long time. I lived in Saudi Arabia. So I studied Islam, you know, I studied Orthodox Christianity and Russia and these other areas. It was always of interest when I would travel, like you know, 
there's a lot of common threads I found. Like if you put aside like the religious organizations, you know, do good to your neighbor, be kind, blah, blah, blah. Sure. But my wife's very religious. You know, we go to church, we do these different things and I enjoy it now as an adult. But I told her from the beginning, like I feel religious when I happen to be out in the woods. And I started to notice that as an adult, when I would actually, when I started to learn to hunt, you know, when I'm sitting in this tree stand, despite being bored, I had this appreciation for these things around me. You know, I wasn't intentionally meditating on it, but I found myself in that state. And especially mm. like when you're in a place like Idaho or Montana, like where you can't help but feel small every time you walk out of your doorstep. And that reminder mm. of being small, when you do it every day and you actually, you know, at least acknowledge it and don't just let it kind of slide by and become the norm. For me, that just like beat me down in a positive way to where like I was having religious experiences out there standing in the water trying to trap for beaver, no matter the outcome. When I hear an elk bugle, I'm like, you know, that's as close to God as I'm getting on this earth, you know, in mm. my mind. And those things compounded too. And you know, for me, that's my religious experience, you know, an organized religious experience is just getting out in the woods. And it's something you can't describe to people who don't go do it themselves. I would have to agree with that. You know, there, there is just as, like you say, a religious, there's a cleansing, there's a calming, a oneness sort of experience about just being out in the woods. Or if you're a Canadian, being out in the bush. Yep. Um, and people will laugh at us. Well, that bush, that bush right there, which bush are you talking about? <laughs> right. But really yeah. you, you get up in the mountains, you get out in a little bit of isolation and, and, you know, I've had a past podcast guest, uh, Nikki, Nikki Vincendel, she was on Alone, which is a TV show where they put you out in the woods and you got to survive. And she did phenomenally well. And she's like, you can do it in your backyard. You, you can go to a park and do it. You don't have to be like right out in the middle of nowhere. You don't have to be doing something extreme like what Zach is doing. You can still have those experiences. I, I just find it, I find it really interesting how it seems with AI, with computers and everything else that, uh, technology, the way that we're, we're working, um, how we're trying so hard to make everybody so connected, but yet how there's this fundamental thread of being disconnected that seems to be running through most people that I talk to, that I encounter. And I don't know if that's just because I'm in an echo chamber or I'm surrounded by people of similar kind of interests, or if there is a higher level of disconnectedness from the fact that people just aren't experiencing the outdoors in the same way. I don't know. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. My perspective is, you know, writing this book. So obviously you know, my big social media is LinkedIn, right? It's goofy as that sounds, you know, professional networking site, but you know, this past year, um, as I wrote the book, I'd have people, you know, it's funny. I work for a huge company, you know, publicly traded, you know, I'm on calls with vendors from Google, from wherever. And I just decided, I, I don't care. Like I'm going to be me, you know, even if I get fired. So I'm showing up to these calls with, you know, animals behind me in various states of undress. <laughs> if I, like I got blood on my hands in the morning and I'm on a call. And what's funny is it sparks a conversation. And I, I was afraid to be honest, I was afraid that I was going to get fired you know, there's a right. lot of woke cultures, things like that. You know, so I sure. tried to be like 
cautious and I'm not showing it off. You know, if, if it happens to be in the background, that happens to be in the background. Yeah. But the amount of people in the tech industry that I you know work with on a daily basis, they might see it and not say anything. But without fail, I've gotten so many messages from people saying, do you mind if we talk? And yeah. it's been amazing to get on the call with these people, you know, who live in San Francisco, live in New York, live in Austin, and, you know, might not be getting that dose of, I'm going to call it reality. I don't mean like reality and, you know, like uh, the way most people use it, like real outdoor experiences, like what the earth and world really just is, which is, you know, violence and meanness in the outdoor world. And sure. They become well, there is curious. no, there is no mean, there is no nice or this is. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of times that's violent and, you know, sure. a lot of times it's beautiful and charming too, but you know, there's, yeah. there's extremes and people yeah. start to say, like, how are you doing that? Like, you know, why? Like, I, I'm very curious. You know, there's a lot of curious people coming to me saying like, I kind of have these feelings too. Like I've been stuck in lockdown for two years in my, you know, studio apartment in New York city with crackheads running around stabbing people outside. Like, you know, is there a better place? I'm like, well, you know, probably. Uh, yeah. But there's a lot of people out there that are having these kind of innate, like you said, there's this common thread of disconnectedness that people, hmm. I believe, and again, I could be wrong. I always reserve the right to be wrong. But, you know, <laughs> I believe that there is an innate feeling in all of us to have a connectedness to nature. And like you said, technology, our society is pushing us in a different direction. And I think with technology, people were becoming a little hip to that, you know, even though they're mm. being sucked in and addictive features to the things we're leveraging, there really is this opportunity where there is information out there. If you pull the thread a little bit, um, mm. you know, there are, I don't know if you've had the chance to read it, but I'm going to go on this little diatribe because I think it's really important. Okay. At the end of the book, um, I mentioned this short story. I think that it's written by E.M. Forrester. This story was written in 1907. You can Google it. It's called uh, The Machine Stops, I believe, or When the Machine Stops. You'll, you'll have to fact check me there. But you can look it up. UC Berkeley has like the 27 pages. This story was written in 1907. And this guy writes this story and paints this picture where the whole world has kind of migrated to the core of the earth and everybody is assigned their own rooms. They betrayed the earth. You know, they don't want oxygen. They want this to machine to provide for them. All they care about is higher education and philosophy. So essentially all these people are born and then they're taken to their own room, which might be on the other side of the earth from their parents. They're provided for, they can FaceTime. This guy predicted FaceTime with people across the world. You know, all they're trying to do is just become more educated. But the story goes, this mother is in this thing and she's irritated by her son calling her from across the world. He's like, I need you to come see me. And it was very rare for people to actually go and see them. So this writer also predicted air travel. So the mother mm -hmm. gets on this plane, leaves like the underground colony and flies over it and part of the story is her kind of sitting in this plane, looking down at the beautiful, you know, bare Himalayas, just disgusted that, you know, how could people have ever wanted to be in that like violent, you know, barren place of, you know, trouble and struggle mm. and everything else and then lands and, 
you know, her son is like, I found a way out. Like this, there's something better out there. And the mom's like, no, you're crazy. And you know, the story ends with the son kind of like climbing up through this thing as the machine breaks down and people start dying underground because, you know, they're reliant on this apparatus. And the son is the one who kind of kind of climbs up through the rafters and makes it to the earth and finds other people who had escaped too. And they're like, you know, this is, you know, he was afraid to breathe air for the first time, but then he did. He's mm. like, oh my God, this is it. So that story is so apropos for what we're talking about, which is there's this innate need. Like it, it feels so good to be provided for. It feels so good to have creature comforts, but there's a beauty in struggle and there's no better place to find struggle than in nature and to kind of get back in touch with that innate feeling. I believe. I like that. I I'm right on side with you. You can't be happy if you've had everything given to you. That struggle is that learning process, those difficulties that overcoming the building that's happiness is a byproduct of all of that. If you try and shortcut all of that, if you co-opt responsibility of your food gathering and your harvesting air quotes here of animals to the butcher, to the grocery store, to a Costco delivery, you're doing away with that struggle and your struggles. Now people are still going to have struggles. They're just going to be different struggles. Oh, my Costco delivery was an hour late instead of when I was, it means I missed my appointment. Right. And. I, and I think that's where the, um, I don't know, the reality of, of living starts to go askew. Like what, what's important to a person? What is important yeah. is like to me, what's important to me? Well, I want to make sure that I'm healthy. I want to make sure I'm healthy so I can look after my family and that they're healthy. Um, and then my friend network, and I want to make sure that I have time to be able to allot the appropriate amount of time for my family, my friends, myself. Um, works pretty far down there on the list. It's an important thing that needs to be done so that we can, we can live, we can do our things, but push comes to shove. I mean, what is, what's that saying? A rich man has many wants, a sick man has only one, right? Um, what is it that makes you happy? Yeah. Yeah. Well, nothing's been cooler, no trapping, no animal, like hands down being a dad is the coolest freaking thing in the world. And part of that whole idea of being a dad for me is like, I'm now getting to share some of these things that, you know, are still a new, exciting thing for me, trapping and hunting. Like I took my daughter in a sled out to check the trap lines the other day in the snow. She had a blast, you know, she was, you know, yeah. petting the dead beaver and trying to give it a hug. I'm like, all right, well, let's, <laughs> let's not do that. But, you know, <laughs> sure. being a dad it truly makes me happy. So family is the nutshell. Like family is important to me, you know, clearly becoming more connected with nature. And, you know, I do want to say for people listening to, like we've talked about my all in approach, right? That was right for me. And I happen to have the right time and opportunity to do that. But kind of like you said, you know, you don't have to do that to start introducing little bits of wildness to kind of get reconnected with that common thread we all have. You know, it might mm. be going to do a, a pig butchering class where you would normally get your meat anyways. It might be mm. taking a walk outside. The you know, opportunity is truly endless and there's a spectrum and I'm on one end of that spectrum and that's worked for me and anybody who wants to do it, good on you. It, you'll learn a lot, but there's, you know, stepping stones, 
you can take along the way to kind of beat that down and, you know, beat the monotony. And you know, I'm not immune to falling back into some of my old habits. You know, like I said, we ended up buying a place in Boise. So we had a place to land. And when we're here, mm. we do DoorDash. We do, uh, <laughs> you, know, yeah. you know, our delivery. And those creature comforts are still nice. It's not like I'm, you know, fully out in the woods all the time with my pitchfork, you know, telling people to stay away, but it's, well, I figured out what works for me to kind of keep that level that I need. And, you know, for me, like when I am in Boise, a city of 200,000 people, it feels like when I used to live in Moscow or Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, like it feels like a million person city and I can only mm -hmm. take so much before I'm like, once you're free, you can't really go back kind of situation. Like once you've tasted yeah. the marrow, of, uh, you know, real yeah, like the solitude. Like the chapter title of one of your, well, in your book, one of the chapter titles, Tasting the Marrow. Um, yeah. You know, I remember reading a study once about road rage and there is a correlation on road rage incidents and population size. And they said essentially, and I mean, it makes sense. But essentially under a certain population side, the preponderance of road rage was next to nothing. But once you reach a certain threshold and I forget what it is, all of a sudden the people in your community don't become people in your mind anymore. For most people, it's just, it's just a car or someone or something just cut me off and I'm, I'm, I'm upset in a small enough, uh, metric, small community. It's like, ah, oh, there's there's Bob again, he's probably drunk or there's Janice, you know, she's pretty old and you just, you just kind of let it go. But there's a dehumanization process that happens in people's minds over a certain population size. And yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. I, I, and not beautiful in the fact that, you know, that happens, but it's true. And that, that happened to me and I, I, I lived that, right. I was living in these mm. big cities before I went to, you know, Idaho of a town of 35 people. And in the book, I talk about like, I had no interest in being a part of that community when I went there. Like I was there to like isolate, learn to hunt and trap, you know, neighbors fine, but I got sucked in, um, you know, by hook <laughs> or by crook, you know, like, you know, neighbor had to help me learn how to open a flu. And I'm like, oh yeah, I'm Zach, by the way. You're like, oh yeah, you're the new guy. I'm like, yeah, that's me. Um, but yeah. it, it happened that way. And there was that rehumanization of, you know, I had been so burned by these big cities and this tiredness that I felt and that, you know, dehumanization, like, yeah, someone driving down the street, that asshole, you know, they're cutting me off, like, oh, what I would do to them. But now you're right. Like, it doesn't mean people don't piss you off because they do, but you know who it is and you know more about their <laughs> life experience, what they're going through in any given time, or you might be the you're one. More understanding. Yeah. Yeah. It goes both ways, but it's, uh, that was a big learning experience for me too. It almost, you know, I took the hunting and trapping is great, but it also just regrounded me as a human and made me appreciate like, despite the BS, despite the polarization, despite the, you know, pressure from social media one way or the other and algorithm pushing certain things down your throat. Like we're all humans. We all have stories to tell. Some of us are innately bad, I'm sure. But you know, for the most part, people are great. I learned that yeah. a long time ago and forgot it. Like I lived in Russia. I lived in Saudi Arabia. You think of like all the kind of bad actor states in a lot of our minds, like the people I met there on the ground, some of the most amazing, beautiful human beings I've ever had the privilege of talking with and conversing with and breaking bread with. And, you know, 
my journey back in the States, ironically, kind of broke that down in me when we were living in these big cities, like you said. Funny. So you, you took that conversation to the next place where I was going to take it. Awesome segue on your part, but that was an that was something that I picked up on in reading your book and maybe I'm reading too far into it. Maybe I'm not, you'll let me know, but I got the sense that you wanted to be away from everybody only to find at the end that it is the people around you that really kind of made you feel whole. Uh, yep. is, is that an accurate reading of your book? Yeah. And we touched on it a little bit, right? hundred like yeah. percent. You know, I went out there to defy everybody. I was feeding yeah. my own ego in that moment to say, I don't need my ex-wife. I don't need anybody. Like I can go and I will learn to survive. And I didn't, mm-hmm. you know, I screwed, you know, left to my own devices. I would have been like, had a handful of traps, a bow and been even skinnier than I already am now, um, begging someone for food and even going to the trapping community, right? Like I wasn't expecting to be immersed in that but they welcomed me with open arms. Um, you know, it's, it's just been a welcoming community overall. And when I kind of like, it wasn't my own doing that made me break down that barrier. It was nature doing it for me in a lot of respects. So I'm appreciative of that, but Mm. it got me there. And now I'm very appreciative of my community. I, you know, I'm back to appreciating it in a much better light and realizing that, you know, yeah, there might be some people who could go out there and do it by themselves, but I'm not that guy is the point. You know, oh. there are people like that, but it's not me. And I don't think it's a lot yeah. of people. I think a lot of people have this imagination that it could be them or it is them, but the reality of it, I think we need each other and we need to figure a way to be able to communicate with each other and get along and, you know, being out in the woods, being out in a smaller population, it allows you the ability to uh, maybe do that a bit easier. So I know you're not really yeah. on social media. Um, we did put some questions out to the Silver Core Club members and as well on social media, we got a couple of questions and I got one just, you know, from a personal interest, it'll probably segue really well back into something that, that you said earlier when we were talking, but a couple of questions that we got, uh, one person says, uh, what techniques and methods did you learn that could assist someone else looking to write their own book? So, um, yeah, a hundred percent. Um, I have a golden rule and I had written a book before self-published, didn't go with a publisher. Um, I worked with a publisher. I worked with Tucker Max and that crew down there. And he taught me genuinely how to write. Um, you know, I knew how to write, but Mm. I was always in this vein of, you know, again, ego, I would write something you know, write a couple paragraphs. And I'm like, oh yeah, Zach, that's, that's pretty damn good. And then I'd immediately go back and start editing it, you know, like just tweaking it and focusing on yeah. this. And then I never really got that far. So one of the things that they mm. taught for me in writing a book is this idea of a vomit draft. So genuinely, if you have an idea for a book, create an outline and do not stop writing. Meaning from chapter one to chapter 40, whatever it is, Start at chapter one and just write. And then when you get to a stopping point, you do not go back and reread what you wrote. And there's techniques for that. Like I actually ended up like blacking out with a highlighter what was before it. So when I came back the next day, I might leave like a half a sentence so I could understand where I left off and Mm. I'd pick up. And that way you actually get words on paper. Now that makes the editing process that much more of a bear, but you Mm -hmm. already have this turd to polish, right? So you got to get that on paper. Um, that's, 
you know, that's changed my approach. So like now I actually have another book coming out next week. You'll be able to check it out on Amazon. It's my first foray into fiction, historical fiction, uh, okay. the Western genre from the 1860s. Um, and I just got in the mode of writing. So I write every day. So I wrote a whole nother book, shopped it around to a publisher. And now I have a three book contract deal for a Western series. I'm halfway cool. through the second book in that series. And I'm on the hook for another one by the end of the year. But it's all taking that vomit draft. So Very get cool. it on paper. Yep. Get it on paper is the key. Uh, then go back and edit it. Just do not, whatever you do, do not edit as you go. Just write. Good advice. Okay, this next question is, and it's one that I actually will struggle with, uh, it's about switching gears. Is it difficult to jump back and forth between the off-grid life and then being the tech guy? Is it hard for you to switch gears? Um, it's, it was when I kept them separate, meaning mm. like it was difficult when I put on my full facade of shirt and tie Zach, you know, at the office, blurring my background and, you know, being the stuffy asshole that we all are in our corporate lives. Um, what made it easier is when, you know, I really just decided like, you know, what, why am I bothering? Like, if people are who I think they are, which they've turned out to be, they're going to be accepting. And as long as I'm not being gaudy with like, again, a dead animal behind me, that's half skinned, you know, that's me being an asshole. But if I'm just being me and presenting myself as who I am and being open to talk to people about it, or someone asked me about my weekend, not being afraid to say, yeah, I was out on my trap line. Um, you know, that has helped me bridge that gap is just being authentic. Mm. Now I get, not everybody is in that position to be able to do that. Um, but that was a commitment I made to myself. And it's actually, I would say, helped me more in my professional life because I've actually built more relationships with people, even people who don't hunt or trap, but are just curious and, you know, building an actual personal relationship with them. Um, but again, I, that's how I bridge the gap. Again, realizing that's not, not everybody in a job is probably in a position to do that without fear of losing their job. So that's not my advice yeah. to go just be willy nilly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But Hey, find, find what's true to you and it makes it easier essentially. Yeah, um, for sure. So another person says, is this something that you see yourself doing in your old age or is it a young person's game? Um, I'm going to take that question as like hunting or and trapping. That's, that's kind of how I figured it. Yeah. Or living in a remote community. Yeah. It's funny. Um, we have some hardy, hardy people in Atlanta, Idaho. Um, when someone asked me that there's a woman there, a single woman, she's a little hunchback, trouble walking. Her name is Sandy. She lives in our community by herself with a blue healer dog. She's mm. 85 years old lives by herself. I mean, she relies on the community. Like a lot of us will help like go chop some wood, take it to her house. But this woman is free. She's the sweetest woman. She's had an interesting life, but you know, now kids, grandkids grown, gone, husband gone. And she is proud and lives this off grid, tough lifestyle. She's got to build fires every day. She's got to cook for herself. You know, she's out walking with a little stick all the time. She's snowshoeing in the winter. Like that's my idol. 
So the answer is yes. I sure hope so. Like as long as I can physically do it. And, you know, if my wife and I are still around, you know, when we're in that old of an age, I sure hope that I can live that hearty lifestyle because I think she's getting longevity from it. Um, That's my observation. And I hope I'm in the same boat, God willing. Very cool. Um, Next one, last question that we, uh, because we had a few in there, but we already kind of gone over some of the questions that have been asked. So I've just been uh, culling through has been going, uh, what, what conveniences do you miss if any, when living in a remote community? Yeah. Well, so we have no grocery store, we have no gas station and we have one bar restaurant and I love the owners. They're, they're great, but you know, the menu diversity is not very wide you know it's like a, grilled cheese burger, again yeah exactly yeah <laughs> precisely and you know yeah. it's great because we do our own meal prepping up there we eat a lot of the wild game we do all that but boy do we miss sushi so like there is when we do come down to like boise you know mm. we have a hit list you know we're like doing sushi one night we're doing you know takeout chinese the other and you know for that like couple days or weeks like by the time we leave boise you know we are like sick, we're like, we don't want to eat out again. And we do it every time. So we don't learn our lesson, but, uh, yeah, yeah I think just like some of the food, right. You know, like I said, yeah, I could see that we love eating wild game, all that stuff, but man, we're still humans. We're not like super athletes now, like all performance based. So we like our creature comfort. So food is definitely the, the hardest for us. And, you know, there's the electricity issues, right. Off grid, but you know, we kind of lean into that because the best thing, and I hope my employer is not listening, but when you don't have cell phone service and, you know, yeah. your generator's out of gas or whatever else, and, you know, the power goes out for a few days, you kind of get like a three or four day, like impromptu vacation. And that can be stressful in some situations if there's important stuff and that might force you to drive down to the city. But if you can lean into it a little bit, even if it's for a day, like it's so nice to just like, surprise be jolted back into the 1800s and you're like, well, here we are. That sounds amazing. I I do like it whenever, you know, whenever, even in the urban area where I live, um, power goes out, things are down. I always embrace it. I love it because it's so hard to turn it off. Otherwise it's, uh, well, I got to be there for work. Well, I got to do whatever it might be. Now you got to you have an excuse and maybe really what I should be doing is just making that excuse for myself. Well, it's funny. I'm a, I, I talk about it a little bit in the book, but I'll expand briefly here. Like when I first got out there and we'd have these frequent power issues and the internet would go down, we have no cell reception. So when the power's out, you're disconnected. So I had mm. a little garment spot and I talk about in the book, like at first for the first several months, like every time that would go out and I'd be in a meeting or have meetings scheduled, I literally have stomach pains because I felt like I was missing out and all this stuff. I'd get on my Garmin and I'd like message my boss and the big one. Okay. You're off grid. So why are you messaging me? <laughs> like, oh. um, but I learned that I'm not that damn important. Like, you know, we also mm-hmm. bloat our calendars and work a lot with meetings that are also meant to feed our ego. Like previously my whole sense of worth at my job was like, how many calendar invites do I have in a day? Because if people are wanting to request meetings with me, I must be producing something. And Mm. that taught me that that's not the case. And like, it made me better at asynchronous communication. Like 
you know, that meeting that I had posted, I could probably do that in an email or a Slack message. And I started mm. adopting that more. And I saw, you know, calendar invites fall off my calendar and it was beautiful, but it came at that pain of forced into it and being extremely mm. nervous that I was going to be fired at any minute. Yeah. And you're saying that you realized that you just weren't as important as you, I guess, thought you were still important enough for the business to keep you employed. And your productivity level increased, if I remember correctly, you became better at your job. I don't I know. Like there's I a did. lot to be learned. Yeah. There's a lot to be learned there. Okay. Here's my question to you, which kind of segues back into this new business that you're putting together. All righty. As a tech guy, working in AI, working in the tech industry, realizing that it's not all bad. It's not all good. It's kind of how we use it and how we want to, uh, uh, what we choose to direct our attention at. How can we use technology to help strengthen people's relationship with the natural world? Oh man, this is a, a fun one. So one of the cool things that's come about the book, you know, come about my exposing what my life is like on a professional networking site like LinkedIn mm. is that I've made a lot of cool connections of people who ride that line similar to me of like technology and the outdoors. So I've mm. been able to converse with like, I've become buddies with one of the guys from Mountain Tough Fitness. So people who don't know what mm. Mountain Tough is, you know, it's an application. They do a lot of great workouts that are geared towards backcountry hunting. It's amazing. Um, it got me ready for my elk hunts. That's an opportunity in the outdoor space to implement technology. The guys that go wild in Kentucky, it's a social media application all about hunting outdoors, trapping, hiking. Um, another cool application. It's like Instagram for the outdoor space, essentially. Mm. Um, you know, there's a lot of things, even from a data science perspective, which is more my space, the, the CEO of hunt score, uh, you know, where you can use their application to start to figure out hunting units that have like higher percentage, you know, opportunities, um, for out of state hunters or in state hunters. Ah. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, so there are these things that are coming up and, you know, for me being a tech guy, having gone through some guided hunts myself and saw the, uh, the gap in customer management, I've worked with three buddies and we are launching the outfitter.guide, www.theoutfitter.guide in February at the Western Hunt Expo. So we'll have a booth down there. We somehow magically were able to get into that. That was a lot of luck and stars aligning. Um, (laughs) But essentially it's going to be a business or a B2B2C company where we will be selling our software to outfitters. Outfitters will sign up with us and they can kind of, you know, onboard their hunters seamlessly, let them sign contracts. We can take over the payments digitally. So you're not sending a check to some PO box in Arizona. Mm-hmm. And, you know, from that time that you sign up, then we as the outfitter guy take over the customer management. So you're not going to be dealing necessarily directly with the outfitter unless you need to, but we're going to be taking that gap period from the time you sign up to the time you're in the field preparing you, which means we'll be sending you notifications saying, Hey, you know, John, you're in South Carolina at sea level. You're about to hunt doll sheep in Alaska at 11,000 feet. Have you done your lunges? No. Well, here's a discount code or a free year of Mountain Tough Fitness. Get to it. You know, have you zeroed your rifle? You know, well, you know, according to your location, there's four rifle ranges around you, or here's a discount code for a long range course. You know, doing that along the way. So you're not questioning 
And when you're going on a hunt that already has a low probability chance of success, we're going to increase that. At least that's our hypothesis. So that way, when you do get out in the field, you're not worried about if you're going to get fed and if you need to pack more cliff bars, you'll know that Mm. upfront easily and you're going to be most prepared and you're going to feel better about this large money investment you're making along the way as well, which hopefully will give outfitters more repeat customers, give them other opportunities to monetize as well so they can up and build their own businesses in a more deliberate fashion as well. So that's it in a nutshell. But yeah, technology and outdoors, there's a lot of opportunity here and a lot more younger folks like me who have tech experience getting into the space. I imagine and expect to see some more really cool things where the two things you know, meld together in a way that's not too obtrusive. Zach, you're one smart dude. I like that. Um, is there anything that, that we've been talking for a bit now, but is there anything that we haven't talked about that you feel we should before we kind of wrap things up here? No, I don't think so. I think we covered quite a bit, which is awesome. Um, yeah. Yeah, it, it's been a blast, Travis. I've really enjoyed getting to chat and talk, you know, a little bit more in depth about some of the the underlying currents of the book and you know, our society writ large. So I hope a lot of people take something away from it. Well, Zach, thank you very much for being on the Silver Pro Podcast. Yeah, I appreciate it.